Well, we had a quiet, sleepy little logging town that was trying to evolve beyond that. We had two chairlifts and three T-bars. And we had typical base lodges. And today I would call it no snowmaking. I would call it minimal snowmaking in that era. You live for lake effect snow in the 60s and 70s. We watched the growth of skiing in the 70s and 80s. We kind of followed suit with lift upgrade, snowmaking upgrade, building upgrade, repeat. Welcome to the storm. Your host, Stuart Winchester always fired up to talk skiing in my home state of New York. First up, though, your reminder that if you are only consuming this podcast with your ears, you are missing a lot. Please go to stormskiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. There is an article for this episode and for every podcast episode that includes a full breakdown of the ski area and tons of additional context around our conversation. And that's just a fraction of what the storm delivers. I am also churning out breaking news, reporting, analysis, and reflections on the world of lift-served skiing all year long. Stop getting your ski news from Facebook. Get it at stormskiing.com instead. You can also follow the storm on Twitter and Instagram at StormSkiJournal. Before we get to Holiday Valley, a word from my friends at Open Snow. I live within a five-hour drive of approximately 150 ski areas. That means I have choices, and I need to know where it's going off when I plan my ski days. Is Western New York getting hammered? Is it the spine in Northern Vermont? Or can I sleep in a bit and make do with Catskills, Poconos, or Berkshires? It's more than I can sort through myself, frankly. That's why I use Open Snow. Outlooks from multiple weather forecasting models, updated hourly, resort-by-resort snow forecasts, and one of my favorite features, frequent email updates focused on the region of your choice. For me, I rock the Mid-Atlantic, New England, and all U.S. emails, but you can choose from more than two dozen daily snows, focused on regions as varied as British Columbia, Colorado, Southern California, the Midwest, Idaho, or on specific mega resorts such as Jackson Hole or Mammoth. Open Snow is now a storm partner, but I have used Open Snow for years, and now you can too. Test drive Open Snow's best features with a free 60-day trial, including 10-day snow forecasts for your favorite ski resorts, high-resolution weather maps, expert analysis, and much more by visiting opensnow.com backslash stormskiing. That's opensnow.com backslash stormskiing. Episode 117, Dennis Eshbaugh, President and General Manager of Holiday Valley, New York. Question for you. What do you suppose is the busiest ski area in New York State? A lot of you might guess Hunter, or maybe Whiteface, or Gore. But the answer is Holiday Valley, a sprawling network of glades, lake effect snow, and fall line runs in the wilds of western New York. 11 quads, four of them high speed, with a high speed sixer inbound for next ski season. It's one of the state's best run and most modern ski areas. As I often say, however, none of this was inevitable. 
rewind five decades, and western New York was filled with potential holiday valleys. 20 minutes south sat 750 vertical foot Wing Hollow. Half an hour north sat 800 vertical foot Bluemont. Both had similar lift infrastructures and trail footprints to a contemporary Holiday Valley. Both benefited from the same lake effect snow bands that rake Holiday Valley, and both sat in the same population zone reachable from Cleveland, Buffalo, Rochester, and Syracuse. And both are long gone. Holiday Valley thrived because it kept moving. It is widely considered one of the best run ski areas in America, and it has stayed strong and popular even as it's ignored some impossible to ignore industry trends. Holiday Valley is not a member of any mega pass, it has no reciprocal ski pass partners, and its all access season pass has stayed right around the $1,000 mark even as discounted mega passes proliferate across the landscape. Much of Holiday Valley's success has occurred under the guy who joins me today. He has a terrific story and an amazing perspective, so let's get right to it. My guest today has been president of Holiday Valley New York since 1995 and general manager since 1989. With 13 lifts serving 290 acres of terrain on a 750-foot vertical drop, Holiday Valley is one of the largest ski areas in New York State. Located in the Lake Erie Snowbelt, Holiday Valley averages 180 inches of snowfall annually. The ski area frequently ranks among the top resorts in the region and took the number six spot in Ski Magazine's 2023 Reader Resort Rankings for the East. He has worked at the resort since the 1975 to 76 ski season and has held roles as ski school director, project coordinator, and assistant general manager. Dennis Eshbaugh is my guest. Dennis, so good to have you. Welcome to the storm. How is everything today out at Holiday Valley? Well, things are very good, Stuart. We have a blue sky day, temperatures in the low 20s this morning, although it's warmed up to about 32. And it should be a spectacular day of skiing. And thank you for uh, the opportunity to join you. I do want to add one thing. You're number six, actually. Uh, I wish we were a, a year behind because in 2122, uh, that reader survey actually placed Holiday Valley as number two in the East, which Ooh. we were we were pleased with. We're, we're always glad to be in, in the illustrious top 10, especially being the only scary under 1,000 vertical feet that makes that makes that list. Yeah, it's a tremendous achievement that you and the team should be very proud of. And, and, that, and, and that's, that's a good note, Dennis. That is a consistent honor, the Holiday Valley. If you go back through the decades, Holiday Valley has always appeared on that ski magazine list, despite the big, big competition. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Let's, I just want to get in real quick to the 2022 to 23 ski season here, Dennis, because it has been a wild one. We had a 77-inch snowstorm up at Orchard Park, which I realize is north of you in November. Another blizzard in December dropped 52 inches on Buffalo over a five-day period. And I realize that's all a bit north. And then we had a big thaw in January. So overall, how has your ski season gone, the 2022 to 23 ski season at Holiday Valley? Well, the answer is long, but the short version is surprisingly well. You know, the highs are we started off going into the year preseason sales up significantly. Our December uh, over-the-counter business, daily visitors, 
was up dramatically year over year, up 64%, um, which was almost astonishing. Now, we did not have as, as strong a December uh, in the year prior as many eastern areas were a little slow out of the gate, followed by a record uh, January, February. But, you know, great way to start. And then January hit. And, you know, the weather cycles became more dramatic. We've certainly uh, fallen off in the uh, January over January, down about 11%. But between uh, the start of the season and today, we've actually had two record days, which was incredible. And and we're still holding holding strong above our five-year average. So, you know, again, I said that the short version was surprisingly well. You know, the conclusion, well, it's not over yet. I'm really impressed with our ability to respond to the weather cycle and provide good skiing. And the and the constant thing that I hear from our core skiers is that while the weather hasn't been favorable, the skiing's been very good. It's interesting that you've had two record days, and there are a lot of potential catalysts there. One sort of big elephant out there is this is Vail Resort's first full season owning Seven Springs, which is not necessarily close to Holiday Valley, but you do draw from some of the same markets. Do you think that that has had any impact on that increased business at Holiday Valley, or do you think it's just a combination of other factors? I would lean towards the combination. I I haven't noticed anything of particular note. You know, again, when I mentioned that the preseason sales were up, and so you know, I don't think there was any fall off from that. Our Pennsylvania business over the last twenty years has actually increased. Uh, used to represent four or five percent of our skier visits, and grew to eight to nine to ten. I think actually uh, during the pandemic, it represented uh, around twelve percent of our visits. How much of this ongoing surge that you're seeing this year do you think is driven by that COVID-driven outdoor surge? Well, that that is an important question that we watch and ask ourselves all the time. Um, you know, what did we learn during during the pandemic era? Well, the first thing, you know, we, we went from shutdown to where all of a sudden the first activity that seemed to be allowable uh, was golf. And uh, New York State, of course, was very quick and strong in COVID response and shutdowns. But the golf suddenly was allowed uh, to open. You know, swimming pools, not so much. Other outdoors uh, activities, the uh, sky high and, and outdoor venture stuff uh, worked. But as we watched that, and there was this giant influx of golfers, which then was followed by skiers. And, and quite frankly, going into the winter of 2021, we thought our numbers would be down dramatically. They were up. And they continued to carry through in 21-22. So here we are today, most people perceive COVID being in the rearview mirror, although we still have cases in the area, they're minor. Uh, it's somewhat business as usual, and preseason sales continue to increase. So, so you know, I think that may have been started or, or you know, instigated by the pandemic, but it seems that we've retained the people that re-entered skiing and started skiing for the first time. Uh, and we're holding on to them. And that's that's the number one goal. You know, Dennis, I don't know how public you are with skier visit numbers. I've I've often heard that Holiday Valley is the busiest skier in New York State. It, it's it's hard to nail these numbers down exactly. But what can you tell us about Holiday Valley skier visit numbers, how they've increased over time and where you rank among the state ski resorts? Um, I'm glad to answer that question. Yeah, well, we're certainly not the largest uh, in terms of vertical uh, in New York State, we have been the largest volume skier in New York State for 
20 plus years. Uh, we ski we ski about a half a million skier visits, which you know generally uh, would put us into you know the top uh, five or six in the east. Uh, clearly, uh, uh, Killington and and uh, Tremblant trump those numbers, but usually. Uh, historically, the Sunday River Mount Snow and ourselves are are in there vying around that that half a million mark. I mean, it's just remarkable with doing that kind of volume at a ski area. With, like you said, I think as skiers we get hung up on vertical drop, but it, it's a big ski area. Anyone who's been to Holiday Valley knows that it feels like six or seven different ski areas combined into one, and it takes a long time to wander from one area to the next. Now, as I mentioned in the intro, and as we discussed. Holiday Valley frequently in any top list for ski areas in the east. And and when you compare your your visitorship numbers and you're stacked up against resorts like Okemo and like Mount Snow and like Sunday River that are these famous regional destinations, well-capitalized parts of big conglomerates. I mean, how much pride is there, Dennis, in the Holiday Valley team at being this resort out in New York State? that doesn't necessarily have the big New England vertical drops, but consistently competes with those as a business and as far as how skiers view it and value the resort? Well, we we try our best to be proud of what we've accomplished, but avoid being prideful. You know, I think hubris tends to come back and, and haunt you at some point. We've been a ski area that has been focused on the product and quality and being satisfied with being the best that we can be at what we do. You know, are there things that we admire uh, in other uh, ski areas? Absolutely. And learn from. You know, I, I think the, the lesson there was Sam Walton, and he was famous in his early days of, of building Walmart about traveling around the country and he would walk into a small gas station in the Midwest and, and uh, you know, he would look at the display of Coca-Cola and say, hey, Joe, take note of that. Okay. We mm-hmm. should, we should, we should use that. And, and so, <laughs> you know, I think that's what, that's what's important. You, you learn and you can learn from the biggest and the smallest as well. Stay true to who you are and be proud of what you've accomplished. You know, Holiday Valley reminds me a little bit, Dennis, of, you know, I interviewed Charles Skinner and he owns a few large ski areas in the Midwest. He owns Granite Peak in Wisconsin, Lutzen in Minnesota, and now a resort that he's renamed Snow River in Michigan. And a lot of the destination Midwest business was hit hard by the ease of traveling out West. And it's not necessarily what it was, say, back in the 60s. And Holiday Valley reminds me a little bit of that because it's out in this rural region and the ski areas at the markets you draw from, the skiers at the markets you draw from, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Buffalo, they can easily go out west. They can easily go to New England. Yet Holiday Valley, as you say, continues to be high volume, continues to be popular. How do you do that? How, how do you compete with, because you're not just competing with Bristol and Seven Springs, you're competing with a weekend at Keystone and a weekend at Stowe because it, it doesn't take that much longer really in the modern day to get there. So how do you do that? How do you compete and stay relevant given this really national landscape? Well, I think it's a combination of things. It it, it starts with access, of course. We've got 28 million people within a 200-mile radius. Um, more importantly than the distance is it's about a three-hour drive because we have very good road infrastructure. And and I think that makes a difference. Um, we, 
every one of our skiers, with the exception of those that live in Ellicottville, drive back by another ski area to get here. So, so we have viable competition, uh, and we have to create something unique and different that will bring those skiers, you know, to us. Now, the the question about you know going, you know, bigger and west, etc. You know, that absolutely is important. I think that most of our core skiers do eventually find a, a trip somewhere in, in the west um, and sometimes the east. But that's, you know, generally for a week, uh, occasionally a long weekend. And the heart of the skiing that they do tends to stay regionally. And, and as long as we can satisfy them, give them that product, give them an experience that approaches what they were going to find if they're in Utah or Colorado or California. And... Uh, make sure that we give them value for their hard-earned money. You know, I think in addition to what you and the team have built there, I think the Holiday Valley has two really nice natural advantages. One is a lot of lake effect snow. Like I mentioned in the intro, 180 inches average per season. The other is what you just mentioned, Ellicottville, which is just this tremendous little ski town, tremendous little resort town. Talk a little bit about each of those factors, Dennis, and how they play into that Holiday Valley experience and help make it really this true resort experience. Without question, um, it's an important part of who we are and what we do. And, you know, it starts, I think, with we've always worked hard uh, to have a good relationship with our community. Um, Ellicottville started as, you know, the, the old logging town. It was the county seat you know, 150 years ago, uh, had a fair amount of actual uh, light uh, machine manufacturing, all of which is gone with the exception of of, uh, um, one successful uh, uh, wood manufacturing plant. And it's become a community that, you know, is centered around and based around recreation. Um, In the process, um, it's been healthy. I mean, I, when I, when I first came here, it was pretty quiet in the off season. And, you know, today there, there are 20 different restaurants, bars where you can, you can get a meal, uh, and celebrate. There's, there's successful retail and, you know, lodging. The number of pillows, uh, is, is huge. We have about 2,600 pillows, uh, in the Ellicottville itself, of which Holiday Valley manages about 1,600 of those. And, and within a 20, 20 mile radius, there are 6,000 pillows. And, and so it's all part of making yourself a, a true regional destination. So Holiday Valley is a nice modern resort and, and we'll get to all that and your great lift infrastructure and everything. But I, I want to rewind here a minute, Dennis. As I mentioned, you arrived in the mid 70s. So take us back here. Where did you grow up? Did you grow up in the area? What brought you to Holiday Valley? Well, I I was born in Erie, Pennsylvania, and what brought me to Holiday Valley actually, I was was teaching skiing, and I met the uh, uh, ski school director uh, Bjorn Hogland uh, back in the seventies at uh, um, well, what was it called the the White Pin, a USEASA PSIA certification, and and uh, Bjorn and I uh, uh, went by the nickname Swede. We're certified together, and, and he convinced me that I should come to Ellicottville. I'd been, I'd been at Peak and Peak a couple of years prior to that. And so I started uh, in the ski school, was the technical uh, director. And, and then um, after a couple of years, Bobby Foster had taken over the ski school with a very special and talented guy. And he called me up one summer day and in uh, late summer, I guess, in 1978 and said, I'm leaving. 
He went to Waterville Valley. And uh, are you interested in directing the ski school? And so I was fortunate enough to become the co-director that year, the director the next year. And, and then through the 80s, took on a number of projects, starting with project coordination. I, I became the assistant uh, GM in 1981, um, then the director of operations and, and became the general manager, uh, uh, yeah, only 34 years ago, 1989, uh, followed by the, the president or the chief executive of the company in 1995. So it's been a great ride. I have I've been challenged on all levels, uh, but I have had an equal number of rewards in in what we've done here, the people I've worked with. Um, it's it's been a it's just been a great career. Was this your intention, Dennis, to have a career in the ski industry? Um, no, it was. Um, well, I shouldn't say completely no. I, I thought I was going to be a forest ranger, um, mm-hmm. and uh, that was sort of you know obviously I I like the outdoors. But I fell in love with skiing at a, a, a relatively early age, and there was an allure and a desire there that, uh, you know, I, I guess was stronger than any other interest. And so it was, a, it was an easy path to follow. So when did you know that it was a career? Was, was, there, was there a moment? Was there a day when you said, okay, this is, this is what I'm doing? Was it just the opportunity of having that ski school director job? What was it that... that kept you in it when it, rather than going the forest director route? I think it, I think it probably was um, uh, that opportunity in the ski school that, you know, there weren't, there weren't a lot of uh, jobs that you could really make a living off uh, teaching skiing in the East in that point in time. And so you were going to be supplementing it with something contracting or whatever. The ski school director position uh, basically opened my eyes to, you know, there, there is opportunity there. You, you get to make a choice of, you know, kind of where you want to focus your strengths or interests. And I absolutely fell in love with the challenges, the variety of the work. You always had that uh, ability, of course, to interconnect with people. And you were on snow. What's better than skiing? <laughs> I, I can I hear that. So you're coming up here on 50 years at the resort. And I have to imagine, Dennis, you know, the, the ski industry is fairly small, but it's also kind of big as in there's a lot of opportunities and it's small as in everyone kind of knows each other. So I imagine someone got in your ear at one point and gave you an opportunity here or there. What has kept you at Holiday Valley for going on five decades now? Well, that's, um, yeah, that is something you face in your career, of course. Um, You know, there are always opportunities that, you know, are, are luring. Uh, sometimes there's an offer that is intoxicating in the opportunity. And of course, you know, you can weigh and measure, well, you know, a bigger ski area, a bigger vertical, um, more prestige, uh, et cetera. But I've stayed at Holiday Valley, I think, simply uh, by asking why and being true to, to oneself, being true to myself. You know, I've been incredibly fortunate to be here. I've started my family and, and uh, my wife, Jane, and two daughters, or, you know, Ellicottville is, is their home. Um, and you build a relationship, you know, with the people in the community. Uh, and then you see an opportunity for something to be bigger than it is. And to be part of that growth is incredibly rewarding. And so while, yes, there's always opportunities to go elsewhere, 
the gem was right here at Holiday Valley, and and I've been pretty fortunate to be on that ride. So in order to stay in a situation for that many years, I have to imagine that you have some pretty good people around you, and that goes up to include ownership. And the ownership of Holiday Valley is not always super obvious. It's owned by an entity called Winsome Ski Corp. What can you tell us about this entity, Dennis, how you work with them, and and have they been the owner for the entire time that you've been at Holiday Valley? The the Winsome uh, is not Winsome and Lose Some. Um, actually, <laughs> uh, I had some fun with that in a court case 35 years ago. Um, but but our predecessors had the vision to actually abbreviate a winter summer ski corp, uh, and and when they started Winsome Ski Corp, Holiday Valley. Um, and a little bit of the history, skiing first started uh, in this area uh, on Fish Hill in Ellicottville and in Allegheny State Park in 1935. And Bill Northrup was actually, he was a local dentist, was kind of the, the fire starter. He married Edna, who became the matriarch of Holiday Valley for a long time. But, but ultimately, um, after chasing a few rope toes around, and I think one of the earliest rope toes was in the 35-36 season. One was built on Fish Hill and one was built uh, in Allegheny State Park. And after moving around, they, they saw the valley and said the snow's better, the terrain's better. And they bought a piece of land from a dairy farmer. Edna and Doc uh, and a small group sold shares of stock and lots uh, on a gravel road out of a Jeep. And in 1957, skiing started. Actually, that's not true. There was no snow in 1957. The the opening day, I think, that year was January 8th of 1958. So in any case, uh, it's a small group of people. We have a seven-member board, of which I've been on and uh, part of. And uh, although we have uh, about 100 shareholders we have a, it's a closed corporation. We, we basically control, retain the stock. Uh, and the voting control of the company is controlled at the board level. So the seven of us, and, and uh, it's been incredible. Uh, some of my predecessors on the board, Dana Fitzpatrick on for 40 years, Dick Reading, who was on close to 30, and Bud Dobbins, uh, 41 years. Uh, absolutely unbelievable. Skip Yon, who had my job before me was on the board 50 years. So we've had this continuity. We've had the ability to work together, laugh at our mistakes, um, uh, never stop reinvesting in the company. Uh, it's It's been a very special group and it's it's taught me more in my decades of working with the board and being on the board on how to accomplish uh, something by basically cooperation. Um, very special. That is an incredible legacy to have one stable group of owners or one entity owning the resort going all the way back to the 1950s. You know, as you look around the industry, Dennis, obviously we're in an era of consolidation and we've seen Vail Resorts, Altera, Boyne, Powder buying up as many resorts as they can. One of your biggest competitors, Seven Springs, obviously went to Vail along with its sister resorts in 2021. Zooming out here, how committed is Winsome? in your estimation, to keeping Holiday Valley independent indefinitely? Well, very committed. Um, 
but I should qualify that with at this time. And, and so then that, of course, that begs the question, why? Well, it's for all the reasons that we've been successful. And, you know, why argue with success? Why change success? But I, I think then you have to ask your question, will this ever change? And, you know, bravado would tell me to answer that never. Um, but logic uh, would tell me uh, to recognize the success and the many good things that the conglomerates, you know, Vale and Altera and others have accomplished. And, you know, what we what we have committed ourselves to do is to learn from their successes, um, be, you know, open to how they and the others in our industry uh, evolve. Um, certainly recognize the significant impact of, of, of conglomerates' impact on how skiing is sold and how the industry is evolving. And, you know, you look at the product they deliver and the availability of capital, and that's important. So, you know, while independence and ownership is very important to me and it's what I know, um, you know, I don't think of myself uh, as an owner of Holiday Valley. I, I think we're caretakers and, and we're caretakers of something that's far greater than individual parts. Um, you know, I, I love the analogy of a three-legged stool. And in, in this case, um, you know, you, you start, you have the one leg is the shareholders. Uh, you have the employees in the community that make your company work. And you have your customers and, you know, success requires support from all three legs. You know, we, we look at, you know, you mentioned some of the things that these larger conglomerates are doing and, and learning from those and some of those things reflecting in Holiday Valley. Let's talk about passes here for a minute, because that's the most obvious outcome of this consolidation is the Epic and Icon passes. And we've seen in many markets that the Altera have entered season pass prices declining quite a bit. In Vermont, for example, as soon as Vail bought Stowe, the pass price went from $2,300 a year to around $800 a year. Sugarbush, Killington, Mad River Glen, they all dropped prices right away. Western New York, there's not a Vail or Altera or an Epic or Icon Mountain in the region. Partly as a result, the pass prices have stayed high. Holiday Valley's all-access season passes remained around the $1,000 mark. It can be a little lower depending on the access tier you buy and, and when you buy it. Just talk about your season passes and whether as your skiers have looked around and said, okay, I can get an Epic Pass for $800, I can get an Icon Pass for $1,000. Why is Holiday Valley still 1000 Have you seen that pressure? Um, and if so, how do you keep your, why do you keep your prices where they are? How do you set those prices at Holiday Valley? I love your questions, but they're not easy. Um, <laughs> you know, to... To start it with, you know, have there been concerns uh, and questions? Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think personally, I avoid the social media message. Um, I think that's Smart mostly, man. yeah, well, I think it's mostly social meaningless. Um, but, <laughs> but there are a lot of younger people who disagree with me. Um, I think many of our core customers um, have Icon and Epic Passes. Uh, my wife, Jane, and our recently retired VP of operations 
are currently out west skiing for two weeks and, you know, they bought ICOM passes because of where they were going to be skiing. So many of our customers are doing both. But, but the important thing is, you know, at the end of the day, what are we delivering and how do we sell, you know, to, to those, those supporters? And our $1,000 pass basically means that, you know, our, our day rate that you've got to ski about 12 times or more for it to have value and, and that you also, of course, get the convenience. And so those are the people uh, that are buying the pass. Unfortunately, that's growing, not not shrinking. I, you know, we weren't certain how that would that would uh, develop when the Icon Epic passes, Indie passes, etc., came out. But but we've not only held strong, we've we've had some growth there. We also have a wide variety of alternate entries into skiing and. You know, I, I, I'd like to say that, you know, Vail followed our lead, obviously tongue in cheek. But, you know, we started back in the 70s uh, night skiing uh, with school groups, um, very low entry to non-prime prime time. And that has evolved into this rather complex fabric of different things. You know, there's a there's a white pass, there's a Sunday Express, and there's a lot of different entryways into becoming a quote-unquote pass holder, but not a, not the classic pass. The classic pass, a thousand bucks, that basically you know puts you in a, a unique group or league. But you know we have ten thousand other buyers of these other pass programs as well. That generally are getting the skier committed for anywhere from eight to twenty times uh, or eight to twenty visits a year. So that has has worked well. It's been a win-win. It you know, builds a base at entry, entry skiers are, are uh, able to come in and, and hopefully that builds a base, not only for our business, but I suspect it also builds a base eventually as they become uh, more committed to the support for, for a uh, icon or an Epic pass. Now I want to make this point. I think, and I would have to check these numbers, but holiday Valley is probably open as many hours per week as any scary on the continent. I, I don't know what your average week is, but you have night skiing, I, I think seven nights a week. So talk about that night skiing footprint, those students, that sub business, and how important that is, not only to Holiday Valley, but to the industry as a whole, because as you said, you have this huge region around you and you're just creating this factory that churns out new skiers. Well, it is important. It's, you know, it's interesting. I wouldn't call it the engine of the train, but it's certainly where the cargo is carried. And, you know, the engine of the train, you know, are still, you know, those course gears that are coming on weekends, holidays, prime time. That's obviously going to be the highest revenue part of our business. But the base of building these gears for these programs, and as you, as you mentioned, yeah, we are open seven nights a week. It was Interesting, in the growth era of skiing, the 70s and 80s, it was amazing in urban proximate ski areas what you saw. I mean, we had Kissing Bridge to our north, and they had uh, multiple nights a year where you skied all night. Uh, and then you skied until 4 a.m. Or, or 2 a.m. We never enjoyed that success because the road infrastructure back in the 70s wasn't as good, partly, in our distance. But we still, you know, we operate uh, either at 9 p.m. or 10 p.m. at night. And it's impressive. I I was amazed, for example, last night, you know, looking out here. We had a beautiful sunny day yesterday. And and uh, I left the office uh, around 6.15 to go watch the Super Bowl. And, and I couldn't believe the number of people that were skiing. Obviously not football fans. So... <laughs> 
You know, just back to the passes here for a moment, Dennis, I, I imagine that Holiday Valley is one of the few ski areas that would fit neatly on the Epic Icon or Indy Passes. And you can make an argument for any of those. And and obviously there's examples all around you. Wyndham is on the Icon Pass, Hunter on Epic, and then Swain and Peak and Peak have joined the Indy Pass. Have they approached you? Have you considered joining any of these pass coalitions? Yes. Um, you know, we do look at these opportunities uh, every year, have discussions, and there are certainly viable reasons, you know, to consider that. At this time, you know, we've elected to stay the course and, you know, focus basically on our collection of passes. And so far, we have enough strength in the market that we can do that. One of the things that, you know, I think that we're, you know, a little slow to respond and and I'll, you know, I'll... I'll uh, uh, go back and and uh, you know look at how things have evolved with the sale of tickets over the years, and sometimes the the newest and best idea doesn't necessarily survive the test of time. And I'm I'm not saying that that these past programs won't survive the test of time, um, but you still have to make it work from a financial and economic standpoint for the company uh, while you take care of the uh, of the customer, and. You know, at, at this point in time, we felt that we're able to be independent and hold our own. And I don't know what will happen in three or five years. You know, one of the nice things about joining these past coalitions is season pass holders can then typically add on an icon pass or an indie pass at a discounted rate. Another way that mountains around the country, and this mostly happens out west, have built up the ability for their pass holders to get access to other mountains is by these reciprocal deals. And Holiday Valley has had a few over the years, and you did have a three-ticket exchange with Ski Cooper. I think you may have had one with Seven Springs as well before Vail, but correct me if I'm wrong on that. Um, and, and that lasted for a season or two with Ski Cooper, and you discontinued that. Why did you forge this relationship with Ski Cooper and ultimately leave it? And I guess, are these sorts of deals – could we see these at Holiday Valley for pass holders in the future? Well, you never say never. We have participated in some of those and, and uh, Mountains of Distinction, et cetera, uh, over the years. Uh, you know, the Ski Cooper uh, exchange, you know, I thought was kind of uh, fun and, and what I would just call a lark. Mostly I would give all of the credit or discredit to the marketing side uh, of our company. And of course, uh, my wife, Jane, was the longtime marketing uh, director, but since retired. And so, you know, the, the marketers, of course, have great, unique ways, innovative ways to reach more people. And then the operational and financial side, we sit here and we look and my, my uh, VP of finance, Dave, and I have usually a little different look or skew on that. And so you've got to find a balance uh, between those. And, you know, while they have been fun, I think they've offered, you know, some value or, or certainly value uh, to our customers. They haven't really moved the needle, in my opinion. And so while I wouldn't rule out a future partnership, I don't have any in mind as, as we talk today. You, know, you mentioned your wife, Jane, who retired last year after 41 years at Holiday Valley as marketing director. Talk a little bit about Jane's legacy and what she was able to achieve over those four plus decades. Well, the first thing that she achieved was that she miraculously was able to work with somebody like me that is sort of, <laughs> you know, a technocrat, task oriented and, and not always pleasant. 
Um, and uh, somehow she successfully navigated that and and made Holiday Valley uh, better. She had a, a wonderful, unique ability to build relationships, um, uh, carried an awful lot of water over that course of time, certainly helped me in, in my career, but more importantly, helped the company. The, the great thing, though, of course, is, you know, being able to, to move on in your legacy. And, and um, you know, I'm excited to say we've got some really great young people. Dash Hegeman is the new marketing director. But we've got some great young people in the company that, you know, will be taking it on to the, to the next stage. Jane has got some wonderful opportunities. And uh, actually, I think I said earlier, she's, she's currently right now in Utah uh, skiing for two and a half weeks. So, uh, you know, that, that's a good way to uh, wind your career down. Amazing. Did the two of you meet at the mountain? Yes. Um, uh, I was uh, here and she came and was hired uh, in the ski school. And then very quickly, that would have been probably around 1980, very quickly uh, moved into sales and marketing. So Jane built up the marketing function over four plus decades. Take us back here, Dennis, to the 1970s when you arrived. You know, you mentioned the crummy road infrastructure at the time, but paint the whole picture for us here. What was Holiday Valley and Ellicottville like when you arrived in the mid 70s? Well, we had a quiet, sleepy little logging town that was trying to evolve beyond that. We had uh, two chairlifts and uh, three T-bars. And we had typical base lodges. And I, today I would call it no snowmaking. I would call it minimal snowmaking in, in that era. You know, you, you live for lake effect snow back, back in, in the 60s and 70s. Um, and so, you know, we watched the growth of skiing in the 70s and 80s. We kind of followed suit with this sort of lift upgrade, snowmaking upgrade, building upgrade, repeat. And, you know, we stayed true to that for decades. You know, I think the key was always keeping in motion, striving for continuity. You have to avoid, you know, the temptation and the grandiosity that follows a great winter, because there will also be winters behind that that aren't. And, you know, avoid avoid fits and spurts in development. And then probably the thing that I think we've done really well, although we have had tremendous real estate development, uh, in the community and around the the resort, uh, we've been very careful to protect the core, the park, the the ski area where the recreation is, whether it's on the golf course or the ski slope, um, and protect that critical base area land, so that you know you have a viable future with the recreation side of your business. And, and uh, you know, real estate is risky business, but it's really important, uh, you know, to to make a successful community. When you say protect the base, do you mean by not overdeveloping it, by by keeping some open space? What, what do you mean by that? Yes. Um, yeah, I think the the challenge when we start selling, you know, real estate or ownership pieces off, then you lose your ability to transform. And And for example, we have torn every building down and replaced it over the, the uh, years and every ski lift. So you have to be careful that, you know, you build something and you, you know, even if it's a wonderful uh, condo or townhouse or lot, but you lose control of that forever. And so you have to be very careful that when you do that placement and circulation and planning that you keep in mind that you want to have the ability and the ownership to redirect uh, the recreational side of, of the property. 
So you do continue to funnel money into the mountain and you're in the midst of a really exciting project right now, which is an upgrade to the Mardi Gras Express. So lay this out for us, Dennis. Tell us about this new lift. What are we getting? What is it replacing? And why is now the time for an upgrade? Well, I think that it goes back to when I said you you know never never become stagnant, always stay in motion. Um, you know we have a we have a great uh, high speed quad chairlift uh, on Mardi Gras today, uh, running very effectively, very uh, successfully. You know you have to look at what's next. You have to continue to create excitement. Uh, you've got to continue to give people the best experience, the newest and the latest, and. You know, it seems like yesterday that there was a debate over the good and bad of a triple chair versus a double. And, and it was it was sacrilege for some people to to put a triple in. And all of a sudden, right. you know, triples quickly fell off and, and you put a quad or, or nothing unless you had a severe uh, terrain constraint. And now, you know, today, you know, your customers are saying, where's the six pack or where's the eight pack? Right. And and so why? Well, you know, I think skiing is social. Uh, it's thrilling. I think our customers, all of us, expect more today in less time than than we had before. Very few people ski eight hours today, and you don't need to. You can you can ski more vertical on a Saturday morning here in two hours than you could possibly ski in eight hours in the eighties because of the uphill capacity. Um, mm-hmm. And you know the. At the end of the day, I mean, technology continues to evolve. Um, you know, I, I'll, I'll use this. I, I had a 1980 Volkswagen diesel rabbit, and I love that car. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure glad cars have evolved beyond that. <laughs> so you're putting in this new six-pack, and you're staggering construction over a two-year period. And that actually, phase one, was last summer. So talk about that decision. Why are you metering this out over two years and how did year one go? Did you achieve everything that you hoped to? I'll go in reverse order. Year one, we did. Um, all the tower foundations uh, are in place, uh, ready to, to uh, stand steel on. We built the uh, access road across the 17 and 18 uh, golf fairways to actually uh, deliver the lift terminals and remove the existing. And you know, I think the reason was a combination of things. When we put in the Mardi Gras uh, chair two years, I'm sorry, the Odler chair two years ago, we were one of the few ski areas building a chairlift because it was early pandemic. And we toyed with actually ordering both lifts at the same time. We took a conservative approach. Well, all of a sudden, everybody in the industry was buying ski lifts. And, and so when we were prepared to sign a contract for the Mardi Gras six-pack, we were very concerned with with supply chain constraints and where we were on the on the list. It's a Doppelmayr lift. They had a significant line of business. And then Katarina Schmitz, uh, who who runs Doppelmayr, uh, Schultz, I'm sorry, um, basically said, you should consider the European model, which was a new term to me. And basically, I guess it's very common or typical in Europe that they take a two-year approach and put the tower foundations in and do that infrastructure and then build the lift, assemble the parts in the following year. And and so we quickly signed up for that. Um, and, you know, as I sit here today, although we haven't built a lift, that'll happen starting in April. I think it's a better way to build a ski lift. You know, everything has become so much more complicated today. And, 
you know, in the eighties, you could decide to buy a ski lift in April or May and sign a contract in June and have a lift operating for, for the next ski season. You know, that, that just doesn't happen today. You have, you know, you have the design process, you've got permitting, uh, fabrication, the complexity of the lifts. So, you know, I, I'm not sure that uh, a two-year plan won't become very, very common uh, in the future. And in, in this case, um, we're pleased with the results, although we're not finished. Have you taken delivery on the chairs, the towers, any of the, any of the pieces yet? Um, we have not. Um, you know, anchor bolts clearly are installed. But uh, other than that, and the equipment, the schedule is May 1, I believe, that the pieces start rolling in. Uh, the lift is scheduled to be completed by October 1, which that's pretty comfortable in uh, today. It's not very often that, that you're building the ski lift and having it um, uh, ready to go on October 1st. <laughs> right. So Holiday Valley is one of the few ski areas in America that self-installs lifts. Just talk about that process, Dennis. Why do you manage this in-house? And and how many installations have your teams done over the years and how were they able to develop this really specialized skill set? Well, it is specialized. And of course, repetition, I think, helps, although the lifts have evolved dramatically. Steve Crowley is director of mountain operations here, and he is an exceptional uh, guy and a great leader. And Jim Curtis is mountain manager. And and Jim, uh, Jim has uh, been here actually a similar amount of time to myself. This will be Jim's 22nd ski lift uh, that he's built. Wow. And so, you know, and there's a you know perfect example of experience and skill set. We've got a, a great lift maintenance team in place. Uh, we've had, over the last 10 years, we've had some retirements, et cetera, but we've got some new younger men that are very skilled. Uh, they're proud of their work. And one of the benefits uh, that we've always felt of building our own lifts is that you not only have more ownership uh, engagement, but you understand the nuances and it puts the team in a better spot right out of the gate when you turn the key on and start running it. Now, we use outside expertise. I mean, you you bring in outside crane operators for, you know, um, we have a fair amount of equipment here. You bring in for the heavy excavation and the same with concrete placement. But Basically, the crew has assembled entirely uh, the lifts uh, over all these decades. Is there a degree of difficulty with a six-pack that isn't there with a quad, or is it just a matter of maybe getting a bigger crane on site? Well, I'll probably be able to better answer that uh, question at, at uh, the end of this year. <laughs> but, um, you know, the, the, the basics of, you know, the supporting infrastructure are similar, although they're larger. I mean, the you know, the footers, footings and foundations have increased, uh, the complexity of, you know, fiber optic uh, communication and all those pieces that are underground uh, have all gotten more complicated and evolved uh, today. You know, standing a lift tower up, whether you're using a crane or a helicopter, hasn't changed a great deal other than, you know, they're bigger and they're heavier and the shift trains are, and um, interestingly, you know, as the lifts evolve, the spans uh, have generally increased between uh, between towers. Uh, so that has changed. That's actually been been better for when you're putting a ski lift on a, on a, a skiable slope. The complexity, though, of the of the drives is something. A gearbox is a gearbox. Better today than it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. Of course, uh, an electric motor, very similar, bigger, 
uh, better and more reliable today? Certainly. Uh, I think the greater complexity, though, is, of course, on the safety and electrical side. The fact that today, a lot of the actual setup and operation of a new lift takes place in the headquarters of the manufacturer. You know, they're basically connected with a fiber optic cable, and you've got a programmer technician somewhere going through all the operating parameters uh, and literally can run that that ski lift from Salt Lake City in the Doppelmayr factory. And so, you know, I think what's happened, of course, you know, some of the very best field electricians and, you know, the, the what's well, mostly men, there's a few women in the business, they still are critically important to making the pieces come together and they, they still ultimately do the troubleshooting in the field. Um, but, you know, there's clearly a pl- place in ski lift construction for young people because they are far more um, computer-based today than they were 10 or 20 years ago. So lots of options you can get on a six-pack. This will be your first at Holiday Valley, only the fourth in New York State. There's two at Hunter and one at Wyndham. Are you getting any fancy stuff on this? Bubble, heated seats. I, I know there's the D-line option, which you didn't go with here. But but what what is this going to be a straight-up lift, or are you, you putting any bells and whistles on it? Um, it is a pretty much a straight-up lift. We did seriously consider bubbles. The challenge uh, with those is maintenance uh, looks as well as, you know, the impact of, you know, operational going in and out of the terminal each time. The lift does tend to go into a prevailing wind. Uh, when the very first double chair was built there, we, we used to issue uh, wool blankets. Um, now, oh, wow. now that, that ride at at that point in time was 20 minutes because it took it took 13 or 14 minutes i think just in terms of running at normal rope speed and that lift never ran uh, you know on a saturday without stopping three four or five times uh, on the way (laughs) you know the evolution with a higher speed and dropping that time you aren't exposed you know you've cut that time down to you know four and a half minutes so you're not exposed to the elements like you were. And the stops and starts with, you know, high-speed detachable lifts have dramatically been reduced because uh, of our ability to load and unload skiers more effectively. So at this point in time, um, no, we've we stayed, you know, relatively uh, uh, simple, but we think it'll still deliver the, you know, the excitement and the result we want. So the high-speed quad you have there now dates to 1996, not that old, you know, 27 years. So uh, can you repurpose that lift elsewhere? Are you going to scrap it? And what's your thinking around what to do with Mardi Gras? Well, we've considered and debated that at length. Um, You know, scrap would never be in the equation. As as, As long as you maintain your lifts well, which I'm proud to say our crew does an exceptional job. I mean, we never defer maintenance of... You know, the fact that Mardi Gras is being replaced, that quad chair has zero deferred maintenance on it. Um, wow. That's just just not the way we operate. So so the big question was, do we sell it or, or do we uh, uh, relocate it? And one of the things is timing and placement. You know, we, we have a couple locations where I think it would have worked, but we finally made the determination to put it up for sale, which we have actually just put it to the marketplace. And, and in fact, uh, I'm um, pleased to say it might go to South America. We have a a ski area uh, that's actually coming here in a week to look at it that is very serious about buying it, um, putting it in containers, and shipping it to Chile. 
Oh wow! Well, that that would be that would be a cool legacy. I always love. Uh, I love going over to Hunt Hollow, one of your neighboring scary. It's not really neighboring, but in your region, and they have Snowbird's old, uh, one of their old double chairs, and that's always really cool just to see see a, a classic lift in a new place. Uh, you know, as you look around your mountain, Dennis, you do have all quads, but some that are thirty plus years old. <clears throat> Sunrise dates to ninety two. Eagle to 89, Cindy's to 91, and Shoot to 1993. Did you consider Mardi Gras? I realize these are all shorter lines of Mardi Gras, but did you consider Mardi Gras for any of these locations? And ultimately, what's your thinking around those four lifts, all fixed grip lifts, as far as eventual replacements for them? Well, the, I mean, those are our older lifts, although quite frankly, I, you know, I don't think they're anywhere near the end of life. You know, I think the usable life of a ski lift really falls back on care and maintenance. And, and so they have a lot of life years in them. And some of that, of course, is operating hours. You know, some of our lifts operate longer hours, you know, day, night than others. Some are, some are very reduced. I mean, the spruce chair only runs Friday, Saturday, Sunday. But um, specifically to reuse of that, uh, I would say the next um, spot for detachable would be on this, the Cindy's alignment. And we did take a hard uh, look at that. The challenge we have is that it's adjacent to the number one uh, T, and it also goes up and over uh, the number 16 fairway. And we just, you know, I, I think what we would like, we'd like a more compact terminal than that addition of lift. And so we concluded not to put it on, on the Cindy's alignment. Whether that was the best decision or not, only time will tell. And when it does come time to upgrade Cindy's, do you think that will become a high-speed lift? Uh, unfortunately, I do. And and I when I say unfortunately, <laughs> you know, there's some old school in me. I mean, I personally love a T-bar. I mean, with a T-bar, you are skiing all the time. You're skiing down, you're skiing up, and you're constantly improving your skill set. But I don't have many customers that would agree with me. Uh, <laughs> we have a much higher expectation than that when we go skiing. And so, you know, we have to we have to meet that expectation. One of the few detriments that I hear about high-speed lifts is skiing is social. People like people. And it substantially and dramatically changes that ability to have a conversation. But then again, it also fits in with the busy lifestyle of, you know, our customer and every one of us and kind of how the world moves on. So I would like to think there will always be, you know, some fixed grips around for those reasons. And I think there will be for 10 or 20 years, maybe 30 years. But the convenience, you know, the ability to keep the lift moving uh, is a little bit of a safety factor, you know, lift lift loading and unloading injuries are, are something skiers work very hard on reducing and detachable lifts are better about that. Yeah. To a lot of those points there, you mentioned the Yodler quad, which you upgraded in 2020. That lift was just 20 years old. It was a fixed grip quad. It's about 500 vertical feet and you replaced it with a detached quad. That lift I recently rode at Catamount. It's doing great over there. You'll be happy to know. I'm not sure if you've had a chance to ride it over there, but uh, but why did you replace Yodler, which was a fairly new lift, and why did you upgrade to a detach? Yeah, I asked that question a lot to our team as we went <laughs> went through that because it it was and is today a very good ski lift. Yes, twenty years. It's not ancient technology. I mean, our 
Are there some changes, a little bit more space, you know, width with a carrier today, et cetera? Uh, minor, the ride, you know, is relatively quick, um, what it serviced. The driving force goes back again, thinking about two things. One is the customer expectation, but more importantly, that lift, although it services the front side and where where a lot of our early and, and uh, still steep terrain is, <clears throat> the lift is also a connecting lift to go from the upper area, Tannenbaum, to Hidden Valley, to the base area, uh, to the East Complex, to Snow Pine. And so we had have a wide range of abilities, novice, intermediate skiers riding up this expert terrain. And a fixed grip lift certainly doesn't service those lower level skiers as well as a detachable. And so that improvement has been dramatic, noticed and appreciated by the customer. But the unintended consequence of that lift and unintended by me was that the core skier, the, the advanced skier, all of a sudden, we talk, I talk about putting more into less time. And all of a sudden, they're making twice the number of laps uh, on Champagne or Yodler or Edelweiss. And it was a complete uh, deal changer for them. And uh, I mean, a good friend of mine who is, he skis every day, every morning, and you don't talk, you ski. And he was the first one that said to me in the first week uh, when it was opened a year ago that it transformed his skiing. And and that was a message that I hadn't anticipated, but that I continue to hear. So how is that going to factor into your future decisions? You know, as, as you look around the mountain, you replaced Tannenbaum and upgraded that to a high-speed quad in 2003. In 2007, you built Spruce Lake and went fixed grip, even though it's it's more or less the same length as Tannenbaum. So I, I guess take us into that decision and then... As you consider that feedback from Yodler, how are you going to consider future upgrades? Do you think that we could get to an all-high-speed lift fleet at Holiday Valley? I do think so. Um, I certainly won't see it in my career. One of the challenges uh, is, of course, cost. And, you know, you, when you the capital cost is going to be two and a half times, you know, sometimes even three, depending on the, the circumstances. Uh, the maintenance uh, we have always budgeted at two and a half times the expense of a fixed grip lift. So, you know, that all that all factors into the to the financial performance of the ski company. And so you have to be careful, um, you know, that you're keeping a balance, you know, between what your customer base wants and what your customer base can support. And, you know, I think one of the benefits of the way we've done it is that we have kind of evolved, you know, over the course of, of time of adding these, doing two high-speed detachables two years apart. Well, that's a bit of a push, but I think right now it's, it's the right decision. As you look around the mountain, you have 11 quads, which is just an enormous lift fleet. Are you happy with where the lifts are? Never mind what they are, but if you were to have a clean mountain, would you put them in the same place or, or are there... Maybe is there a place you'd maybe like a lift or a place where you think a lift is misplaced? How do you how do you feel about the placement overall of the fleet? I think with very few exceptions, <clears throat> our lift and slope layout is spot on. And and you know, I'll I'll talk about when I f- first came here into the managerial side in the ski school. Um, I was part of walking slopes and, and the w- way we did it in that time, we didn't have a planner, but we have a board that's committed to skiing. We had a 
uh, longtime mountain manager. Dave Shoemaker worked in this company for 41 years. Dave, Dave uh, retired and headed to the other side over 10 years ago. But, uh, you know, you were up there walking around in the winter, in the spring uh, before the uh, leaves came out and basically walking through the woods. We had some limited topographical information. We had a surveyor that, a uh, regional surveyor that we worked with for decades. And you'd flag trees and you would look at it from a skier's perspective. And amazingly, we didn't make many mistakes. And I think a big part of that was we had a skier's eye always involved. Um, we had people that, that thought about the customer, uh, but ultimately they thought about where the next turn should be. And, you know, some slopes were wide, some were narrow, some, you know, were, well, most we tended to, to obey the fall line or at least pay close attention to it. Um, but that isn't always possible in order to make the circulation and connection that you have to so that you can comfortably, you know, get from A to B to C. And, you know, I, I, I'll use an example. I think Mammoth Mountain, although every ski area is unique in its terrain, but one of the things that always strikes me when I go there is that you can feel the thumbprint of Dave McCoy because for that giant mountain with that giant complex, it seems to me they have 38 or 40 ski lifts. And the ability to connect, um, I had an opportunity a few years ago to take a low intermediate skier around that mountain and the ability to move from the farthest east to west was incredible and it was all about planning now today planning is different you're using good mapping good topographical we started using brad and jack johnson from jack johnson company in the 80s and they've certainly been been part of lift layout and especially uh supporting infrastructure and buildings to make it all fit and flow so as you look long term i i mean what is the opportunity to continue to develop Holiday Valley. I mean, if, looking from overhead, you seem a little hemmed in. You have State Forest on one side, you have Route 219 on another side, you have Holloman on another side. Is there expansion potential or is the footprint of Holiday Valley ski area built out? No, there is some. It's certainly limited uh, from, from what we had 20 or 30 years ago. Um, there's some good terrain between between Cindy's East Complex and Eagle in the Hidden Valley area that we have actually a lift penciled in over there and some slopes. There's some limited terrain in the upper area, et cetera. You're correct about our neighbors and, you know, we have good neighbors. I love having uh, the state forest, the GEC, Department of Environmental Conservation Controlled State Forest. We actually have, though, done some expansion. The upper area back in the uh, 50s and, and 60s that was a land trade with the state to build that. And and then almost 20 years ago, we did another land exchange, 150 acres with the state to build Spruce Lake and the uh, top of Spruce Lift. So there are opportunities there, although we don't have any long-term aspirations to, to go into the uh, state forest. That other lift that you have penciled in, where is that exactly as far as where it would sit on the trail map? And what would it take to make that happen? Well, it's a, the, the ridge line between uh, the top of the Cindy's Lift and, and Eagle Lift is, well, it's probably about three quarters of a mile uh, along there. And so it would be centered somewhere along that ridge line and dropping down into uh, the bottom of the Hidden Valley drainage. It's, it's good terrain. It's not 
ideal terrain. And I think we need to get more creative. Actually, that's on the project list to look at here at the end of the month. Brad Johnson hasn't been on site for probably four or five years during the pandemic. And, and Brad and I are going to be working on that at the end of the month. Would that be a mid-mountain lift, Dennis, or would that load down near the base of Cindy's? No, it, that's correct. It would be mid-mountain. It would, it would uh, be quite a ways. As as Eagle and Morningstar, um, you know, uh, both are not really accessible, although we do have a huge amount of accessibility to the base area from Snow Pine Lift, Sunrise Lift, Mardi Gras Cindy's, uh, Schoolhouse, Yodeler, Shoot, you know, they, the Tannenbaum and, and uh, Spruce are all accessible basically from a parking lot. So you have a handful of glades on the map, but it seems to me there's a lot of opportunity to expand within the resort's boundary with more glades, and you certainly have the snowfall to support it. I actually found skiing around there that a lot of the woods that aren't marked glades are really skiable and really well-spaced. How much of a priority is that for you, and how much have you thought about building out that official glade network? Well, I think it is important, and, and it's funny, you know, it seems like yesterday, but it was 35 years ago, the insurance carriers, you know, they wanted every glade closed because of exposure to liability. Fortunately, uh, the statistics didn't support that. Uh, injuries in glades tend to be minor and few. And I think, it, you know, I would attribute that to the fact that people are skiing much lower speeds. And uh, and so, you know, the the safety factor that I think the industry uh, was concerned with, you know, 30 years ago has not been an issue. Uh, we have limited what we've designated as glades to areas that we, uh, I guess, uh, do uh, more care, maintenance, and attention to, that we make sure all the dead and, and uh, you know, windfall is cut down tight to the forest floor, or cleaned up, you know, take out some of the stems. Uh, but as you described, there's a tremendous amount of wooded terrain, you know, well over a thousand acres uh, that people do ski in. And, and the good news is that today we're not really required or recommended to prevent that, that we're able to allow our, our skiing public, if they have the skills, to go off into the woods. And uh, as long as we get them back safely. <laughs> All right, Dennis, last thing I want to ask you about today is Holiday Valley implemented RFID this season. Just curious, what made you finally pull the trigger on that and how that's going so far? Do you, do you actually have gates at every lift or do you do the hand scanners? Well, what's your setup and, and how do you like it so far? And how do your customers like it? Well, we have it because the younger people in our company think it's a good idea. Um, okay. That means that I'm old school and I kind of like a conventional ticket and a pass with my picture on it. Um, right. But I also respect the importance uh, of what it offers and, and does. Um, implementation, the RFID team worked uh, with meetings all through the uh, summer and fall uh, preparing an implementation. We, we took ticket checking and created a separate department with a specialized RFID department put it under guest services and took it away from mountain operations. And we did a really good job of preparing. And then the supply chain issues caught up. We almost abandoned the project on the 1st of November uh, because there was virtually no equipment on site. The team determined that they wanted to persevere because of the pledge of delivery and, and the service provider somewhat made that. We still had equipment arriving here, you know, throughout January. So it was, I think, as challenging, although our team probably 
did the best preparation I could have ever hoped for. I think it was a very challenging implementation. So what's the result? Well, I would say really good. In our decisions, we spent a lot of time and have been for a long time looking at both the reader and the gates. And we have, at this point today, we do not have a gate anywhere in the facility. Load gates are very effective. They require another level of maintenance. They require space. And one of the things in milling area and crowd management, we've not not been willing to lose that space. We made the determination to go with the UHF uh, reader, which I think was the right decision for us. It allows the RFID reader to read your pass, whether two feet away or 20 feet away. So they don't have to be intrusive in the line and they don't become an obstruction. There, of course, has been some training and learning, but we've been very impressed uh, with that and the ability. We have much better information about our customers and what they're doing, where they're going, you know, how often they're skiing. Before all seasons pass, classic pass uh, tickets were basically calculated, you know, based on surveys. So, yeah, we have more information, better information. I think the things that we will make use of. Our controller, Dave, would, I think, tell us that he thinks we've uh, reduced uh, some of our loss with better ticket checking. I'm not sure that we'll ever be able to accurately measure that. I hope I hope that's true. So I think it's important. I think we've mostly done it well. I wish it was a little easier for everybody involved going into it, but, you know, well, change is hard. And and, and you get through that, you you stick with it, and you, you keep refining it. And, and uh, quite frankly, I've got to give the highest marks to the men and women that work so hard to, to make this and under the constraints of the late equipment. Our, our IT guys really had their hands full when we opened on Friday after Thanksgiving uh, with limited equipment going into the holiday season, et cetera. But they, they all rose to the occasion. Well, it's the next step in the evolution, and it sounds like your team really came together. So uh, with that, Dennis, I will let you go. I really appreciate your time today. That was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed learning about the history of Holiday Valley and the future. It's a really outstanding operation, and I really appreciate your time and sharing this, and I'm sure the listeners will as well. So thank you very much. Well, thank you, Stuart. And I uh, I don't want you to get a big head, but I, I want to compliment you on your work and what you've done for the industry. And, and uh, here's to a long future, sir. Well, thank you very much, Dennis. I appreciate that. That's Dennis Eschbaugh, President and General Manager of Holiday Valley, New York. Dennis, that was really awesome. I'm sure Holiday Valley Nation enjoyed that very much. So thank you very much for that. And thank you all for listening. I've got two more in the can and lots more on the way. Eagle Crest and Whitefish will hit your inbox next. Then I have the leaders of Pacific Group Resorts, Saddleback, Whitecap, Heavenly, Breckenridge, Deer Valley, Whistler, Banff, Sun Peaks, Stevens Pass, Dartmouth Skiway, China Peak, and newly scheduled this week, Timberline, West Virginia, all lined up to join me. To get those episodes the moment they are live, please subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. New pods appear in your email box several hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter, and paid subscribers receive podcasts three days before everyone else. 
You can also follow The Storm on Twitter and Instagram at Stormski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.